invite you to turn in the Word of God to the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 5. If you find the prophecy of Isaiah, and then work back from there, you'll find where we are this morning. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. It's good to have... Dr. Overly with us again, helping up here. Missed you, brother. And uh, you get in a certain way of things, a certain pattern and habit, and then when it's, you have to alter that, you get all confused. <laughs> so glad to have him back and get into the normal pattern of things and have him lead in the singing of the worship of the Lord. It's great to be able to sing, to sing here on earth as well as to sing in glory. To not just have it that the Redeemer will hear us shout His praise when we're in His presence in heaven, but for Him to hear our praise here on earth. The Father seeketh such to worship Him. He seeks, seeks for us to praise Him. So we are here in Song of Solomon as we come to the Lord's table this morning. It has been our practice now for some time to and give consideration to this book and just slowly working our way through as each time we observe the table of the Lord. And we're going to read from verse 1 afresh just to get again something of the context that is before us in this book. Let us hear the word of the Lord and try not to get too uh, confused by the language. It is a song, so songs have license to uh, speak poetically, to use language that we wouldn't normally use in plain speech, and that's what we have here. We have some language that is reflective of poetry, of allegory, and is helping us to see certain truths that I trust will minister to our hearts. So let's hear the word of the Lord. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand on the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and his hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him. But I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved, that thou dost so charge us? 
My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, a sweet flowers. His lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the burl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Amen. May the Lord, by His Spirit, give us help in His Word this morning. May it be the Word appropriate for us as we come to the table of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we ask for help. We ask for help because we want to sit at this table and feast on more than the bread and the cup. We want to feast on Christ. We want to see Him whom our souls love. We want to be refreshed in the inner man, strengthened where it matters. We want to be helped that we might live more for Thy glory and honor. And we sense our ongoing weakness. And we understand our need for the fullness of the Holy Ghost. So blessed Spirit of God, do not leave us this morning. Grant us great help. Indeed, pour out Thy Spirit upon us with power. And grant that the Holy Ghost will fall upon preacher and listener. And that the church may be edified and built up in her most holy faith. And that there may be signs that follow the preaching of the Word to the building up of saints and the salvation of souls, the extension of the kingdom of Christ, even a little reviving for all of our hearts. So hear prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the laments of the Christian is that his love for Christ is not a constant, that it's not always precisely the same, that our love is not always as strong as it may have been in the past or as advancing as it ought to be since we are to be growing in the grace of God. The last time we saw in the opening verses of this chapter that the believer can lose out with the Lord, we were looking at verses 2 through 8 last time, and I know it's some time ago, but for those of you that can remember, I trust as we read the verses it brought something back to you of what we dealt with. But there can be a carelessness in the child of God. And you can see there in verse 6 that when we begin to awaken and turn to the Lord, when we eventually seek for Him, we find that our beloved has withdrawn Himself and is gone. Now, this is not an unusual, this is not a strange experience in the sense that it is unique to the person writing here or to the context of this particular book. It is indicating something of a A familiar experience is something that we are far too often acquainted with when, because of our carelessness, because we have been lax in our seeking after Christ, because we have thought it not an important thing to go after Him with daily intent and desire, 
We come to these times when finally we look for the Lord. It seems as if He's no longer there. He has withdrawn. He's not right there. I wonder if those in Laodicea, if there were a handful sitting in that congregation, looking around wondering, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? Before the knock came to the door, before the letter indicated that he was standing outside looking for entrance, looking for admission. The Lord can withdraw for various reasons, but largely because of our carelessness. Now, there are times, of course, when it's not our carelessness, but that, of course, isn't in the context here. We believe that all that is being indicated in this passage is that she has been careless. She has been slumbering. That's what we are told in verse 2. I sleep. I sleep. And so it can be for us. But how sweet are those moments when we begin to sense that the Spirit is working afresh in our lives. You know the times. You know the occasions when you're, you're going along, you're drifting, you're coasting, and then you realize you're coasting. You realize that there's something amiss. You realize that you're losing out with the Lord. You realize that His nearness is not quite there the way it once was. And you cry out. Your heart is drawn. And why is your heart drawn? Because you, you, the Spirit is moving upon you. The Spirit is helping you to see things that prior you were not concerned about. You didn't see. You didn't discern. But now you begin to discern it. Now you begin to sense it that there has been a distance created between you and Christ and you're becoming very conscious of it. And it bothers you. And so it ought. This is part of the motivation of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord withdraws to awaken us, to help us to see these careless moments of our lives and to help us to awaken to the realization that we need Him. I wonder if you have reason to lament this morning, child of God. If you have reason to acknowledge that you're not quite where you ought to be. And I don't mean that in the non-specific way in which we all can acknowledge that none of us are what we need to be. I mean in the specific sense that we can say and we can give particulars if we had to that we are not where we ought to be and we can trace back the problem and we can say that there are things that have encroached into our walk with God things that have severed the sense of near fellowship. And we have to lament this morning that we need to get back to where we ought to be. So where or to whom do we run when we're desperate for comfort, desperate for counsel, desperate for consolation from the sorrows caused by our sin? It is to Christ. And so it was for the Shulamite, once again she is awakened, once again she revives, and we are told that she sought him, verse 6, but she could not find him, called him, but he gave me no answer. And again, we, we, we have other 
passages, we, the, the Psalm 89, the Psalm 42 that we sang, these, these passages also reflect the sense that God can at times withdraw from His people. There can be a sense of lament within the soul. And so we have it here. The Lord is speaking. The Lord is building upon this theme. And I hope it is, wherever it needs to be applied, I hope it is not being missed. He's building this morning on these themes, not by the intent of the preacher, but by the providence of God, repeated themes of sensing that the Lord has, has gone away. We're to run after Him. We're to make it our priority that we must have Him back. We must have His nearness more than anything else. And so as she runs around, verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick of love. That is, she is, she is longing she is longing. She is missing out. She knows it. And she calls upon them. She charges them that they help should they come across him, that they help her find him again. And as we consider the rest of this chapter from verse 9 through to the end, I want us to consider it using a little phrase given to us in verse 16 that functions really as a summary of what comes prior, where she says, He is altogether lovely. And you could set that as the, as the title for the message. Christ is altogether lovely. And He is. He is altogether lovely. And we're, I hope we can see that this morning. I hope that we come to the table of the Lord and our minds and our hearts are filled, yes, with a sense of our shortcomings, yes, aware of our need for the shed blood, but also coming with a deep sense that He is altogether lovely. My heart is drawn out after him because his loveliness isn't some abstract loveliness, but his loveliness is more meaningful because of how it applies to me in my need. His loveliness, as described, is, is putting before me what I need as a sinner. I don't need something just lovely in the abstract. I need a loveliness that, that appeals to my lost condition, to my sinful soul, to my need for reconciliation with God. I need that loveliness. And I hope we see it this morning. I trust the Lord will open up the passage before us. So as we consider Christ is altogether lovely, there are two main points. And the first one is His loveliness is hidden from the spiritually blind. His loveliness is hidden from the spiritually blind. And I want to note a number of things under this. First, as we look at verse 9 and deal with the daughters of Jerusalem, note that their blindness means they see value in other beloveds. Their blindness means they see value in other beloveds. And so their question, when she calls them and she charges them to help, they reply in verse 9, What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved, that thou dost so charge us? They ask the question twice. What's the big deal? The Hebrew interrogative translated as what here could just as well be rendered as how. How is he different? How is he different than others? How is he more than others? In what way is he distinct from others? And of course, to ask such a question is to betray ignorance. They don't see what she sees. They don't discern what she discerns so clearly. The daughters of Jerusalem cannot see the distinctions between Christ and other challengers. Others that would claim to be beloveds in this world. Those that would draw out the affections of men. 
And there are many, of course, things that draw out the affections of men. Many things. Never forget it. There are many things that challenge Christ, that seek to, to get your affection where it ought to be directed towards Him. It ought to be focused upon Him. There are many things that come in and threaten by saying, no, 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 give me some of your attention. Give me some of your love. Other religions, other occupations, other recreations. Really, the list is endless. And because of the danger of distractions even to those in the church, and obviously this applies to those that aren't saved, they are caught up with other things, other individuals, other whatever it might be that they say, this is my, where my love is, this is where my affection is, and if you want to know where your affection is, then just look at how you give, how you divide up your time, especially your free time. Look at how you apply yourself in your free time, and you will see generally some kind of indication as to what it is that is coming after your affections. See, so often the things we do in our free time aren't so much about what we find an interest in that it begins within us. So often what we do with our free time is actually something that is pulling us out after it. It's magnetic. It's finding some, something to hook itself into in our lives and then draws it out after us. Now, that's not the case right across the board, but certainly is in many instances. And so we're warned in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and following, love not the world. See, the world itself can be an object of our affection. And not just the world. We're told neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So John warns. He warns. He warns that there are things that will clamor after your affection, the world and the things that are in the world. They want you. <laughs> They're not content to be on their own. They're not content to drift by and not get your attention. They drift by and they sparkle and they have big signs and they try to lure you in and they try to say, give me your attention. Give me your energy. Give me your love. And the daughters of Jerusalem, they look at all the beloveds of the world, all the things that men can give themselves to, and the, the question given to the bride is, is, what's the big deal about your beloved? Why would you charge us so? Why would you call upon us to help you in this way? They don't see the difference. They don't discern don't expect the world to understand you, Christian, when you're infatuated with Christ. Don't expect them to look on and say, that makes perfect sense to me. They, they look on and they think, what's, what's the big deal? What is your religion more than another religion? What is your scriptures more than another holy book? What is your way of living more than another way of living? What's the big deal? What is the big deal? And so the world looks on and they don't see. Their blindness betrays 
The fact that they don't see Christ for who He really is. They see value in other things, and so it doesn't seem to make sense to so elevate Jesus Christ. But note also that their blindness is not so great that they miss the seriousness of the church. Their blindness blindness is not so great that they miss the seriousness of the church because they end their words, that thou dost so charge us. The expression refers back to the oath that she called them to in verse 8. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick of love. So, so why are you charging us such in such a way? This, this charge then gets their attention. The, the call to them is not ignored. In fact, it has an awakening influence where they are wondering, why, why are you so taken up? Why is it that you would charge us in this way? What is it that is so important so they don't miss the seriousness with which she takes Christ? And that's the way it should be. The world may not understand why we take Christ so seriously. But they should at least see the fact that we take Christ seriously. And then ask, why? What's the big deal? To see a person taken up with what the world ignores leaves its own impression. To see someone so taken up with things of eternal consequence. Sometimes it happens, you know. Sometimes it happens that God puts this revived, quickened, enlivened Christian into a sleepy church. (laughs) And the sleepy church wonder, what's wrong with that person? It happens. In fact, it happens far more regularly than we might realize. People look around and they wonder, what's wrong with that person? Why are they so, oh, they're full of youthful zeal. You know, they dismiss the, the vigor, the infatuation. They dismiss it. It's almost like they long for them just to peter out in their affection and get to where they are. Because then they won't feel so guilty about their own lack of zeal. <laughs> this is awful. This is awful. And yet, and yet, how precious are those, those Christians that just want to think about the Lord and they just want to talk about the Lord and they just want to pray to the Lord. They're so refreshing to be around, serious-minded about spiritual things. And when lost people are in their presence, they're, they're surprised, they're shocked, especially lost people who have some kind of faint connection with the church. And their experience, their whole experience has been this sleepy form of Christianity that has no vigor, has no zeal, has no interest. And then you put in front of them this, this, this person who's, who's come alive. I remember whenever a couple of new guys came to work in the place where I was working, the manufacturing firm I worked for, and they, they were hiring new employees and Two of them come in kind of back to back. One came in and then uh, the, uh, the owner was asking him, do you know of anyone else? And 
he, he knew someone else, and he brought him on board as well. So they knew each other. But in the intervening time when the first had been employed and the second was employed, someone at their place of work had been converted. And I could hear them talk. So I'm looking at this man that I've just kind of gotten to know, and then this new guy that I didn't know anything about, and we're sitting having lunch, and I can hear the two of them talk about this guy, and then, and then they mention his name. And I don't know how, I can't remember all the details of the conversation, but I realized who it was they were talking about because they were attending our church. And they were talking about he's become, he's become religious, he's, he's, he's all he talks about is the Bible, and he's always preaching all the time, and all this other kind of language that the world uses in order to describe the conversion experience of a person who's been radically transformed, and now their speech changes, and all they're talking about is the Lord. So it was very interesting to me to just watch these two lost people talk about this person who had been converted. But that's the way it should be, isn't it? That's the way it should be. It should be an impression that the child of God lives his life in such a way that, that, that they are very evidently serious about Christ, about spiritual things, about what it is to be reconciled to God for sinners to know God. But, but they're not always as not always as prevalent as you might imagine. So this is this is what we want. We want we want the world, even if they don't understand Christ and why we're so taken up by him, we want them to be discerning the seriousness of our hearts. We don't want them to think that we take the matter of the Son of God and what He has done lightly. We want them to have a sense of impression that this is really important. Because why, why would they ever think it important to themselves if it doesn't come across as important to you and me? So their blindness is not so great that they miss the seriousness of the church. We want to learn from her in this regard. But also, their blindness is not so great that they miss the beauty of the church. Their blindness is not so great that they miss the beauty of the church. Because look at what they call her. Oh, thou fairest among women. This is the title that the Lord himself had given to her back in chapter 1, verse 8. And now they're using it. They are seeing in her what is true. And this, of course, is, is what the Lord calls us to be, that we would be salt and light, and so that men would see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven, that there would be something impressionable about the way in which we live our lives. Turn for a moment to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. This little epistle written to a preacher, so it is really help to a young man or a younger man who was appointed to preach and teach and pastor and evangelize and help in the establishment of churches. And in chapter 2, he deals with certain people, certain groups of individuals that you find in any community. He talks about aged women, or aged men rather, 
how they are to be instructed aged women, how they are to be instructed young women, verse 4 also, how they are to be instructed young men also, verse 6. So there are these categories, and he's saying this is how to teach them, how to instruct them, this is, this is how you are to help them. And then he comes in verse 9 to servants, to employees. They could be slaves or just anyone who's subordinate to another in the place of their employment. Verse 9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. So the assumption is these are Christian servants, okay? And to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So, again, if you're looking for a summary of the goal of what the apostle is saying they need to do is to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. And this means as they live their lives as servants, as slaves, to masters, to people that are above them, who are superior to them in terms of rank of life, they're not more important before God, but this, this is where they are. They're Christians who are subservient servant to someone who's a master over them. And they are not to respond as is so common among those who are subordinates. Let the gospel, let the influence of the gospel pervade every area of their life so that masters can see it. Ungodly masters, Christ-rejecting masters, they need the gospel as well. And they need to see it through their servants. So in all things, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Take, take all, all the gospel, all the significance of who Christ is and what He has done upon our own life. And then he goes on to argue the case, verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. All sorts of men again. Again, it's indicating the intent that by their lives they will have an impression upon those that are over them. And what does it teach us? What does the grace of God that brings salvation teach us? Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Note that. Underline it. He's redeeming us from all iniquity. He's working practically in our life. Yes, there's the purging, the justification, but note how it goes on, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. There is to be a change in every Christian, a transformation such that even the lowest of society, the servants, the slaves, those who are subordinate to others, and feel themselves to be oppressed, to feel themselves going through the hardship of a life of that particular nature, that they are not to lose sight of the significance of the gospel when they are in that condition. Rather, they are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And then it's extrapolated out. The application, what we're taught, the significance of it, turning from ungodliness. You see, it is the ungodly servant who rebels against his master. It is the worldly lusts that would call us to rebel against the master. We are to be sober. We are to be righteous, godly in this present world. Right here, right now, shining as lights. So the apostle is, is driving toward transformation, change. 
so that what you were, you no longer are. There is something going on in your life, in your heart. You are ruled not by your passions, but by the Word of God. And that makes a difference. It has to make a difference. And your master see it. The master looks and says, Behold, what is this? And like the daughters of Jerusalem then, they're able to say, Thou fairest among women. And really, that, that would be the hope. It would be the hope that even as we, as we, we live before our employers, that they look at us and say, you're, you're the fairest, you're the fairest among all women or among all my employees. Your life, your, your manner, your conduct, the way I can trust you. I can depend on you. The, the gospel is to impact us in every single way so that we can be looked upon and called fairest among women. That, that's the goal, child of God. That's the goal. And because of the grace in her life, something of this clearly was imparted to her. Christ had appointed her the fairest among women. Now the world can see it. And that's the order, of course. <laughs> that is always the order. Christ first appoints you as the bride, calls you into himself. It's after that then the world can begin to see. See the difference? Oh, I know none of us are perfect. I'm well aware of that, very conscious of it. But as Matthew Henry notes in this passage, he says, even those that have little acquaintance with Christ, as those daughters of Jerusalem here, cannot but see an amiable beauty in those that bear his image. They cannot but see an amiable beauty in those that bear his image. It's obvious to them. There's a beauty about them that cannot be ignored. And this is what we are to aspire to as well. Then secondly, and I just have the two main points, not only his loveliness is hidden from the spiritually blind, but also his loveliness is obvious to the spiritually enlightened. His loveliness is obvious to the spiritually enlightened. I know a couple of things here. It is obvious in that which can be expressed. It is obvious in that which can be expressed. Look at verse 10. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. And here I want you to note that they see that Christ is unsurpassed in his general fitness. We're also going to see that Christ is unsurpassed in his specific features. That's from verse 11 and following. But here in his general fitness, because verse 10 is a general statement. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. And then you get the specific. Then you get the particulars that are outlined in the following verses. And this description in verse 10 is not of a mere external physical beauty. This is a beauty that the enlightened soul can see. You see, if this was just about physical beauty, they wouldn't have to have this explained. They wouldn't have to have it so delineated. This is her conveying to them how she sees him. He is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. Now, many of the old commentators see in this description that the white speaks of his purity and the ruddy speaks of his passion or his sufferings, of his blood shedding. But I'm inclined to think that the sense of this description is to convey that he is a picture of health. This is a complexion of health, and it describes his fitness to be everything she needs him to be. 
He is her one and only mediator. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. And I don't want you to miss that. I, I don't think really what is being portrayed here is his purity and holiness or his, his, his sacrifice or some say his deity and his humanity. There are different ideas there. I, I don't think really that is at the heart of it. I think the main point of this opening description is more about his overall fitness to be everything that the bride needs him to be. And this is why then she follows up with the remark, the chiefest among 10,000. My beloved is white and ruddy. He is, uh, he, is, he is perfect health. He is perfectly able to meet all the needs that I have. He has, he has this picture of, of everything that I need. When I look at him, I see all that will be necessary for my salvation. And that is why then he is the chiefest among 10,000. That is, he is a standard bearer. That's how it could be translated. The standard bearer among 10,000. 10,000, of course, is a figurative number. It's designed to give an ins- a sense of greatness, of, of a huge, whatever number of people you want to imagine, he is chief among them all. When David said that he was going to join his men in battle against, against Absalom, we read in Second Samuel 18, verse 3, that the people asked him to stay behind because thou art worth 10,000 of us. And of course, they weren't indicating that you're, you're worth exactly 10,000, but you're worth all of us. Whatever number, you're, you're, worth, you're more important than all of us put together. You have to stay alive, remain here. And that's the sense in which it's being used here. He is chiefest among whatever number of people that you can bring before me. The greater son of David is chief among 10,000, chief among the multitudes of men. And you think of what the Scripture says about him. Think about how we can consider him being chief among all men. Think of what Scripture says. Only to Christ did the Father declare in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You don't find that said of anyone else. It's only of Christ that it could be said, In Psalm 45, verse 7, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. It is only of Christ that the prophet speaks in Isaiah 11, verse 10, that in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Similarly, in the same prophecy, chapter 55, verse 4, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. And because of his sacrificial work, only of him it can be said that God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Or as according to Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. These, these are just some select texts, beloved. I've just pulled some select texts that, that show the uniqueness of Christ, that there's no one who in any way compares. And to take the moment just to, to go through them and to understand what all of them are saying, you come to a very clear conclusion that there is no one like this one. The Father has declared him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's no one who hates righteousness or hates wickedness and loves righteousness like him. This is why he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And on and on it goes. And so what she sees, going back to her text, what she sees 
is all of this combined and more. She looks at him, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. He is the health, the one who is set apart to impart health, the one who is the strength of men, who can impart all that is needed to men. There's no one like him, no one that can help us like he helps us. And Christian, you can't lose sight of this. This is where she begins. If it was to be asked of you, why Christ and not Muhammad? Why Christ and not Buddha? Why Christ and not Confucius or whatever? Why, why Christ? Why him? What do you say? What do you say? Well, this is how I was brought up. Or it's just because I live in the West. Or whatever. Or do you think about who he is? Are you, are you taken up with him and you realize there is no one like this? There's no one that compares, no one that in any way can ever compare. And the Jews, they still look after desiring a, a Messiah, desiring one to come who will fulfill all their desires, and yet they, they've missed They've missed him. They've missed him. There, there, can be, uh, there can be no other like Jesus Christ. No other that ever compares or ever will compare. He is the matchless, peerless, perfect standard bearer, and we are to rally around him. And that's the sense of being the chiefest, the standard bearer. The standard bearer is the one that, that the army rallies around. She's saying, I've rallied around him. He is the chief one. He is the one who lifts up the banner of salvation, and I run to him. This is what we're to do this morning as well. We're not to do anything different than what we have done in the past. At some point in our life, in a condition of being lost, of being fallen, of being sinful, we realize that sin, we realize that, that condition of, of being lost before God and, and someone put the gospel before us and we ran. We ran, we saw no other who could help us, who could save us, who could deliver us. And we ran to Him. We ran only to Him. And we found in Him everything that was promised and more. So he gives the peace and the pardon. He gives the sense of reconciliation. He gives a sense of, of being adopted into his family. All of this by his Spirit is imparted to us so we're aware that, that what he has done for us, no one else could do. That no one else compares, not just in who he is, but in what he has done. There's no one, no one who comes close. So I hope you see it. I hope you see it. I hope you come this morning and you sit at the table and the Lord himself, he is the chiefest. He is the one we come around. He sets this table and he calls us around the table. He calls you around this table. He calls you to himself. Not to labor and continue to be heavy laden, but to come to him and find rest. To come to him and find peace. To come to him and know my conscience is set free from the burden of guilt. Not by something I have done, but because of what another has done. And my dependence on him. So he calls us around. He, he comes 
here this morning and he calls us around and he wants us to see him as chief and sit with him and look only to him. Don't miss it. But also they see that Christ is unsurpassed in his specific features. Not only that Christ is unsurpassed in his general fitness, but in his specific features. And here you have verse 11 through 16. And the bride's description of her beloved starts at the top and works its way down. You can see that. Look at verse 11. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips are like, like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the beryl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. And then, it gets to his countenance, is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars, and then his mouth is most sweet. Yeah, he is altogether lovely. And I don't want to explore all these in great detail. That's not what I want to do this morning, but simply to say that his gold head denotes his sovereignty. I think that's clear. His black hair denotes his unblemished glory. His dove's eyes denote his look of peace and purity. The imagery of his cheeks is of those things which draw in the bees. There's a sweetness, therefore, that that draws you in. There are no lilies that in nature drop myrrh, but this depicts his unparalleled sweetness which the enlightened soul is drawn toward, just like the bees. We, we see the sweetness there in the cheeks and it draws us in towards his lovely face. As for his hands, others wear gold rings to beautify them, but Christ's beauty is an inherent beauty. Nothing needs to be added. His hands, which reach forth to save sinners, are full of sovereign strength. His belly, usually translated bowels scripturally, notes the the place of affection. And so his affection for us conveys the strength and beauty of ivory and sapphires. And his legs, from from which man has his strength, are made of marble and sockets of gold. That is, he has all the strength he needs to save and deliver and do the work that he is appointed to do. In short, and that's all I want to do this morning, is just in short, leave you here with this language being Again, conveying a sense of strength and health. It is really supplementing what was said in verse 10. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. You see here in what is said, I just see in him the fitness of all that I need. I don't need anything else. This, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I'm perishing, and I, I look to him, and what do I see? I see all that I need. And when I see him, I see beauty in every, in all of his parts. You know, when you, you write language like this, it's, it's coming from a heart that has meditated, that has taken time to think about why it is that Christ matters more than anyone else. And I hazard a guess that the vast majority of us spend little time thinking about the loveliness of Jesus Christ. 
we're acquainted with the gospel. We are acquainted with the heart of it, the essence of it, the theology of it. The vast majority of you here this morning, you, you under, you've, you've memorized the catechism. You're at least familiar with it. You know, the distinction between certain doctrines, you can explain them to some degree. You can at least discern error when it's preached. You can say there's something amiss there, something wrong. But all of that is theology, and theology matters, don't get me wrong. But all of that is, is, is heady, it is, it is something you can read, and, and, and even a, an unconverted person could, could know the difference between these things. But her description here is not coming from a systematic theology book. And it's not coming from a catechism, or from a confession of faith. All these things are important. This this is a confession of someone who spent time meditating upon, thinking about the loveliness, just the loveliness of Jesus Christ. And their mind is filled with imagery of all the things that are beautiful in the world, all the things that attract men, all the things that cause us to, to be drawn, and, and we, we paint scenes of, of gold and splendor and of, of all the distinct things and characteristics that you have here. And he has all these things combined. You pull it all together, all the beauty. As soon as you, as soon as you depict the dove, you're thinking of, of peace and tranquility, of, of unity and reconciliation, of tenderness and gentleness. You're, you're seeing all of that just as soon as you see a dove. And she says, when I, when I lock eyes with him and he locks eyes with me, I don't see anger. Oh, that's the way it will be for the wicked one day. His eyes will be as a flame of fire, but not to me. To me, I see peace. Because I've been reconciled by his precious blood. And I see that he looks upon me with affection and favor. She's thinking about this. She's pondering over this. And child of God, this, this is a healthy way to spend her time. Pondering the loveliness of Christ. Thinking about how he is more to us than anyone else. I'm being overwhelmed. Yes, his overall countenance, end of verse 15, is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. You see, the cedars of Lebanon supplied, well, they supplied much in the way of the building of surrounding areas. It was exported around the world. And as you well know, Solomon, the writer of this very song, what did he do? He took to himself the cedars of Lebanon and he used it in part to build the temple where God himself would dwell. And here, here she is looking at him. His countenance is as the cedars of Lebanon. That is, I see in him the supply that I need for my life so that I, I can be the temple of the Spirit. As the world looked at Lebanon, I hope I'm making this clear. As the world looked at Lebanon, they, they coveted the cedar and, and took in the cedar. She says, I look at Christ and see the cedars of Lebanon. And I want them to be exported, brought into me, to build me up so that I can be as Solomon's temple itself, a place where God dwells, where his presence is known. And then she turns to speak of his mouth. She's already mentioned his, his lips like lilies, 
But I think here in the mouth, she's given consideration to his words. And I have said much about this on other occasions. Because what he says is most sweet. His words are sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Psalm 19 verse 10. And I don't want to say any more about that this morning. But I want you to note before we close, not only as we've considered here as loveliness is obvious to the spiritually enlightened We've seen it as obvious in that which can be expressed, but it is also obvious beyond that which can be expressed. It is obvious beyond that which can be expressed because she says then in verse 16, he is altogether lovely. And it's obvious that there's more that could be said, but it's beyond expression. There's more that's lovely about him that I haven't quite explored or Come to understand. But I know this. He is altogether lovely. It doesn't matter what way you turn him. What way you look at him. You come away and you say, he is lovely. He is lovelier than anyone else. The chiefest. Among 10,000. Altogether lovely. This encapsulates everything about him. The word lovely has the idea of desirable. Again, it's not, it's not lovely in the sense you look at it and say, that's lovely. <laughs> and, but you're not really interested in it. The word lovely has a sense of desirability. He is altogether desirable. And that's what she's really getting at. Whatever way you look at him, there's a reason to desire him. You look at his head, or his hair, or his cheeks, or his lips, or his hands, or his belly, or his legs, whatever you look at, however you look at him, whatever you consider, you come away with this understanding. He is altogether desirable. There's no blemish in him. Oh, oh, many, many remarked on the sinlessness of Christ. Many, many could see it. Many understood it. Judas declared in Matthew 27, verse 4, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Pilate asked the crowd in Matthew 27, verse 23, What evil hath he done? And also announced to everyone in Luke 23, verse 4, I find no fault in this man. His wife also told him, Have thou nothing to do with this just man? One of the criminals crucified with Christ said in Luke 23, verse 41, We receive the due reward for, of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And the Roman centurion also observed, Certainly this was a righteous man. So they see something of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean to say that they absolutely understood his loveliness. His loveliness comes, listen, his loveliness comes when you see this righteous man, when you see this just man, when you see this innocent man, when you see all these perfections, and then you realize, you realize, it's for me. It's for me. That that loveliness is mine. And God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Or put another way, to, to impact us perhaps in another way. God has made us righteous who knew no righteousness. So we see him as the impeccable son of God. 
We see him in all his beauty and realize that's my beauty. That's for me. He was doing that for me. This, 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 is, this is going beyond mere admiration. This is to the deep, deepest feeling of, of, of affection and, and love. Because I see in him everything I need. As I walk through the Christian life, as I traverse through this world, surrounded by the daughters of Jerusalem who can't see him, they don't understand how lovely he is. They don't get it. But I have learned, I have learned, he becomes more and more lovely, more and more desirable. He is altogether lovely. And yes, I love it. I love it when I talk to some believer who actually thinks at some point that they're on the brink of death, that they thought they were going to die, and they're, they're, in, that, they're in that condition, wondering if this is their moment, if this is their time. And when they're conveying this to me, when they're talking and relaying all of this, they're, they're, they're telling me that their thought was, Lord, just take me home. I'm ready. I'm ready. And they'll use language like that, and that, that does such good to my soul. Because I see that Christ has not failed them through the years. That as life crescendos to the end and the portal of death, they're they are looking for Him. They're wanting Him. They desire to be at rest finally in His presence and full glory, absent from sin. And they're not coming to the end thinking of regrets and what could have been and why did I waste my life trusting Christ. But, but it's, been, it's, been, it's been the way to live. Right to the end when you have this confidence and you know whom you have believed. And you're persuaded that he is able to keep that which you've committed unto him against that day. When you know that your sins are forgiven, when you know lying on that bed of sickness, you know that it will be absent from the body present with the Lord. I tell you, I tell you, that is one who has learned the loveliness of Christ. That, that when death comes and strips away everything that's unimportant, that the only thing in your view now is Jesus Christ. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. And this is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Can you say that? Can you say this is my beloved? Say, this is my friend. Oh, to be so close, to be so close to Christ, to hear his word, to see the table put before you, and to miss out. Can there be any greater tragedy? The Lord help us to see him even more this day. Let's pray. pray that whatever happens this year 
all the years of our lives. That whatever we do, or wherever we will be, help us to see more of the loveliness of Jesus Christ. Even that one goal, to see that he is altogether lovely. And when the world comes with its glitter and its glamour, with its promises of ease and promises of peace, that we will see it as the counterfeit that it is, and make haste to Christ, because this is my beloved, and this is my friend. So Lord, sit with us at this table. Heighten our senses of thy presence. Impart grace to every believing heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing. It's the hymn, My Redeemer. What's the number of that hymn? I'm sorry, no, no not despairingly. It's 500 and... 535, I don't have the other sheet. 535. We will stand together, we'll sing verses 1 through 3. Think of the words, tremendous words. No, not despairingly come I to thee. No, not distrustingly bend I the knee. We'll stand together, verses 1 through 3.